With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Uh, we continue here on the GM Shuffle. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. Hope everybody is safe, at least here on the East Coast. Mike and I in New Jersey, a tropical storm blowing through. So uh, hopefully everybody is safe and able to listen to this podcast. Uh, before we dive in, there's plenty of football talk. We've been continuing in terms of Sopranos quotes, our favorites from characters. This is one I just want to tell you quick off the bat, Mike, from Christopher Moltisanti. On the Sopranos, after a near-death experience, I saw hell. It's an Irish bar where it's St. Patrick's Day every day. Now that's funny. That that's really good. That that's awesome. Have you ever? Well, when I was in college, we would go into McSorley's Ale House. The drinking age was eighteen, so you could get into McSorley's. They had one bathroom in McSorley's, and can you imagine going to McSorley's on 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 St. Patrick's Day? I mean, that's oh. got to be the dumbest thing possible, right? You know. But I mean, why not drink in front of everybody and then go pee in the street because you couldn't get to the bathroom? <laughs> I was going to say, people drinking so much green beer and then just peeing in sinks, peeing in the, in the street. You're right. They don't care. Right? When you're that blitzed, it's just a disgusting free-for-all. Uh, by the way, Sopranos quotes, we're going to do Johnny Sack today, one of the great characters of the Sopranos. I mean, I never thought I saw a guy love a cigarette more than Johnny Sack. I mean, the way he made love to that cigarette was like truly, like it was like his life, wasn't it? I mean, it was so appropriate that he died of cancer, you know, stage five. I mean, you know, or stage four, whatever that episode was. But I've never saw a guy so. Ha- I mean, Jackie Gleason. When you, I just finished all those books on him. I mean, I don't think he ever not had a cigarette in his hand, and he would puff it along. But Johnny Sack. I mean, when he took the inhale, it was like this is everything I've ever wanted in life and more. <laughs> How about the final episode? As you mentioned the stage four when he's dying, and Ginny like feels so bad for him because she can tell near the end. And she's like, "Here, John. Here, John." She's like trying to give him a smoke. She'd blow smoke in his face just to keep the guy alive. This is happiness to you, right, John? Yeah, I mean it's so bad. I mean I can remember we had a dog, uh, Buffett, named after Jimmy Buffett, the singer, and the dog had to be. It was a little poodle, and it was an adorable little dog, you know. And and it got some kind of Lyme disease, and we had to put it down. And and I felt it, it was horrible. I mean, it was a horrible experience. So the dog loved vanilla ice cream, you know. And so we take the dog to get vanilla ice cream before we have to put her down. And you know, and 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 halfway through, the dog's licking the, the cone of the, the 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 soft serve ice cream, and Millie's like, "Stop, stop! It's too much for." Her. And we both looked at each other and like, "Wait a minute!" You know, whether it's too much or not, it's going to be bad anyway. What a horrible memory! Oh, it's true, but he was great when he was smoking cigarettes. We'll get to it a little bit later on. Uh, this is the major topic right now: training camp week one update. NFL teams worry that players are going to take advantage of the opt out policies. So the deadline for NFL players to opt out of the season 
is Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. The league said in a letter to the NFLPA. Now, this is demonstrably different than what's happening in Major League Baseball, Mike, where you can opt out whenever you want. Lorenzo Cain, the Milwaukee Brewers, opted out the other day. If at any point you don't feel comfortable, you Cespedes just opted out for the New York Mets. Like, literally, what, if you just change your mind, look, go ahead, man, do what you want. It's fine. No one's going to force you to play. Football is saying, no, 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 no. Uh, either you're in or you're out, and you have an option of when to be out, but after that, you're in. And to be clear, players who opt out will receive $350,000 if the league determines that the player is high risk for the virus. Other players will make $150,000 if they opt out. Number of NFL players, we talked previously, Dante Hightower of the Patriots, C.J. Mosley, they've already exercised that right. So this is much different than what baseball is doing, and Devin McCourty called NFL moving the opt-out date an absolute joke. The DB for the Patriots said, I think it's an absolute joke. The NFL is changing the opt-out period mainly because they don't want to see guys continue to opt out. I'm sure they're shocked about how many guys have opted out, but it's the same thing when we signed the CBA. What do you think of McCourty's comments? Well, I think, you know, from his point of view, I think he makes a valid point. You know, I mean, he wants as players, they want the right to continue to opt out. But from a competitive standpoint, I think this is what people are missing completely. Like today, Ziggy Ansu and Dion Jordan are in, first of all, you can't bring players in for physicals or tryouts. That's against the rules. But they're on the 49ers radar in their defensive front, right? We just saw the Vikings, because of Michael Pierce opt out, trade for P.J. Hoff from the Raiders, who we talked about being available uh, right around the draft. But I, I think what happens is without a secure date, it affects the players that are free agents. For example, if you're Ziggy Ansu and two teams have lost legitimate defensive linemen, there could be a bidding war for your services. But if you don't have the opt-out date where it's a hard date, then you just have to either take whatever team that day or that time is willing to sign. There has to be an end to it. So, okay, Jawan James from the Denver Broncos, he opted out, starting right tackle. Denver needs an offensive lineman. Now, there's not a lot of those guys on the street. We understand that. But if there were two or three, wouldn't that player who's free benefit from having more than one team acquire his services? I think players are looking at this really wrong. And from a competitive standpoint, if, you know, the Patriots lose Hightower a week ago, okay, they've had some time to try to figure out what they're going to do, whether it's internally or externally. But, okay, so now they're in the pursuit. But what happens if they sign a guy and then a day later, Tennessee loses their linebacker? They, they've lost out on their guy. So there has to be some form of uniformity to a really benefit the players. If I was an agent and I had a few players that were free agents, I would hold back. I would wait for that deadline. I would wait to let everybody see what they're doing, opting out. And then I would allow phone calls to come in and create an illusion of a market because clubs don't know whether, you know, just say, you know, you have a player and, and the date hits and the team calls you up and says, hey, we're interested in bringing you in. Yeah, you know, you know uh, we got a lot, of te- a lot of teams are interested. What are we talking numbers wise? I mean, I'm just going to tell you. And then agents do what agents do, which is bluff and lie. I think it's really, it's the wrong way to look at it. Do I think players should have a right to opt out? Absolutely. Absolutely, AD. I think they should. And frankly, I think that, but there has to be a point to where you just can't make this decision up on, you got to give it thought. What's that great line they used to say to writers? I don't need more time. I need a deadline. (laughs) Well, I know this. I I write the best when when, when I have a deadline. When I have a lot of time, I don't seem to get much work done. 
And so when you do have a deadline in something like this, it forces you to make a decision one way or the other. And if there's any, if there is any, any doubt, you shouldn't do it. Uh, that rhymes, by the way, the great line is writing. You and I have talked about this before. I'm sorry. I think it's Mark Twain's line, right? I, I'm sorry I wrote you such a wrong, long letter. I didn't have time to edit it because <laughs> clearly brevity <laughs> is something important. But to your point, listen, I, there's a lot that, that's accurate, Mike. Mike Florio said a pro football talk. The league fears players who will be cut will opt out of the season so they can receive a stipend. The league is also fearful, and this is your point, agents are using the opt-out as a way to secure better contracts for the clients. I get that, but here's my thing if I'm a player, and this is my only thought. When you're on a team and you know this, you've been in the trenches, you've got to be all for one, one for all. And if I got a guy who's a little bit squeamish, right? You're going to war here. Like, I mean, it's if I got a guy who's a little squeamish, he's like, you know what, man? I'm just not feeling it. Um, you know, my, I'm worried about the virus and my kids and this and that, whatever. It's like, I almost don't want you a part of that battle. Like, that's the kind of, that's where I like it with baseball. They're saying, listen, if you don't want to go, just go. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear anyone complaining afterwards saying, I risked my life or I risked this and that. So I'm of two minds on it. I totally get what you're saying about the agents and guys manipulating it. But I like the fact that I have the freedom to opt out from a player. Right. And, and I think that, look, you know, John Wooden, the great story about Bill Walton, when Bill Walton, you know, John Wooden had a rule that said he wanted no facial hair on his team. So naturally, the first day that freshmen come practice at UCLA, Bill Walton's got a full beard and, you know, he's got the whole Grateful Dead look going on. And basically, Wooden just calls him in in a very calm way and says, Bill, there'll be no facial hair. He's in Bill says, well, I don't want to shave. He says, well, Bill, that's no problem. You know, then I, we've really enjoyed recruiting you coming to UCLA, but you're not going to play basketball here. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And of course, naturally, Walton goes into the locker room and shaves his beard. So I, I think you have to take the position. I respect everybody's decision to not play. I respect it completely. And if there's any doubt, like Odell Beckham, like I don't really get what he's trying to say. On one hand, he's saying that the league shouldn't have a season, but on the other hand, he's playing. Like how can those two thoughts be in your head? Is he playing because he's making $16 million this year and he doesn't want to lose the money and he doesn't want to take one fifty, Or is he playing because he thinks it's safe? If he thinks it's not safe, why is he playing? Like I don't get that. Like I don't understand the conflict between him. And, and I do know this. You know, I'm not judging anybody. But I don't think Cole Wick was going to make the Saints team. I don't think Jason Vanderlaan was going to make the, the, the Saints team. You know, I don't think Marquise Lee was going to make the Patriots. I really don't think that, you know. I'm not sure that Maurice Condes was going to make the Cowboys or D Drew Forbes or, or Dorbeck with the Browns. Like, I, there's a lot of guys that have opted out that probably weren't going to make the team. And I think that's in the best interest of them. And I think they should have every right to do that. Because this is the way of the, this is the rules of engagement. But at some point for the, there has to be a time where we're either going or we're not going. You know, we're either going or we're not. Indecision is the worst thing. And again, and I would say this to every player, if you have any doubt and you feel uncomfortable after you've been in the building for a week and you don't feel the protocols are really good, you don't feel the testing's very good, you don't feel the situation adheres to what you need, or you have something in your personal life like, like poor Nate Solder does dealing with Hunter's cancer, then that's fine. Stay out. No worries. All good. You're not going to be penalized. It's not going to, we're not, no one's going to hold a grudge. That's what it is. But we got to have some clarity on moving forward, and that's all I think. And I think that some of these guys that are opting out, I think some of them probably have the right reasons to opt out, but the team has to have the ability to go on with the season because I do know this. If 30 players on each team opted out, that wouldn't stop the owners from having football. It would not. We would have football. They would just find 30 more players. 
We're going to play with who we have. There's no doubt about that. I agree with you completely on that. Like if guys, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. I've seen tweets people saying, oh, there's going to be 70 players up, you know, 100 players up, whatever it is. Don't matter. I'm with you on that. Like, hey, I'd rather just know who's in, who's not. If you're not, that's fine. But once we're on, you know, we got to be, we got to be rolling in the same direction and, it would be awfully tough, I think, for GMs, for coaches, if during the week guys are opting out, right? Week 10, we lost this linebacker. Wait, listen, it's hard enough to keep teams healthy because of injuries. Never mind the fact that people are changing their minds about COVID. It, it certainly could be a challenge. But speaking of people speaking up, athletes at Pac-12 institutions have announced a unity group to negotiate with the conference and league ahead of fall sports starting with specific demands in regard to the upcoming football season for, quote, fair treatment for college athletes. The group's goals, titled We Are United, that's with a hashtag, range from clear COVID-19 safety protocols and increased testing to racial equality and name, image, and likeness rights. The news release assigned players that Pac-12 and includes the names of 13 players representing 10 of the 12 schools in the conference. It's made on behalf of hundreds of the conference's football players. You had that great quote uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about how change comes you know, in months, not years, You know how quickly things can change. This feels important, right? This, this feels like the Pac-12 players seem to be on the same page demanding some sort of unity and some sort of um, work being done on their behalf. I don't know what Commissioner Larry Scott's going to do, but this is interesting to me that they're kind of banding together, so to speak. And they, and they wanted Cook to take a pay cut. I mean, literally in their proposal, they, they were basically going to run the Pac-12. And, you know, I'm not sure that they have i think this is a bigger issue than the pac-12 this is an nc2a issue this is really the nc2a sets the rules for the conferences and what you can do and you know look i think every player every player again should have the right to opt out but we're talking about this is a negotiation that's bigger than the pac-12 and it's going to be interesting to see how teams and specifically coaches handle this because, you know, if you take the approach that you are you don't want to hear it, you're going to move on, and you're labeled tone deaf to this, then you've got a problem with the people that you're trying to lead. You know, I think this is one of those where you can't pass the buck, but I'm not sure anything's going to be able to get done because the NC2A controls most of this. I mean, Larry Cook's salary really has nothing to do with the players who play in the conference. I completely agree with one of their beefs with Stanford University. Stanford University's endowment's $27.2 billion. And Stanford dropped seven programs of sports, and they fired 50 coaches. Now, seriously, you got $27 billion. The interest that you're earning on the $27 billion would more than adequately cover all those sports programs. Like, there was no reason for Stanford to drop those. And you're using COVID as an excuse. Now, that I think is the right thing to really beef about. Do I think that they should also for low-income black families? Absolutely. Do all those things important? Yeah, because they're giving their likeness. They're making tons of money for the Pac-12. But that's a bigger issue. That's the NC2A issue that's going on than it's just the Pac-12. So, uh, you know, obviously we'll see where this goes and see how far it can and see really where they have. They have, well, they have 10 of the 12 schools in the conference. Washington State coach told the player either, you know, if you want out for COVID, that's fine. But for this, all this other stuff, we're moving on. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to it. I mean, the, like you said, the demands are calling for Commissioner Larry Scott, administrators and coaches to take pay cuts to preserve all existing programs, what you're referring to there. No schools have to cut anything. And those social justice demands, players want 2% 
of conference revenue to be directed towards financial aid for low-income black players, community initiatives, and development programs. You say, oh, okay, well, 2%. Now, listen, 2% of conference revenue, that's a lot of money. And that would certainly go a long way towards placating what they're looking for. Bottom line is this. If college football happens, it's going to be conference only. Pac-12 is going to go for 10 games starting no earlier than September 26th. At least two weekends of regular season play after Thanksgiving. Maybe a third game if you can get it in. And the SEC, Mike, of all the conferences, I would have put money. Say, oh, yeah, SEC is going to happen. And their plan is this. Ten-game conference only. They're going to push it to September 26th. That was originally scheduled to be week four of the 2020 campaign. So everybody who's saying, is college football going to happen? Well, damn it, they're going to try and it sounds like conference only is the way to go. So we'll still get LSU Alabama, right? We're still going to get the Iron Bowl, Alabama-Auburn. Yes, it's not going to be the same with certain schools traveling all over the country. But if you love college football, it sounds like 10 games conference only. That's our best bet. Yeah, no doubt. The other thing I think that that's kind of an interesting conversation to talk about a little bit too is Jack Del Rio going back to the original conversation about players opting out. You know, Jack Del Rio gave an interview to The Athletic the other day and he said I have personal views that probably would not set well with my professional occupation right now I think I'll just leave it at that you know I, I think to me you, you know this is really the challenge of a coach now dealing with players I'm not saying you, you shouldn't have different views than the players but I think you have to keep what you want or what you believe to yourself and treat everybody and treat everybody with the right to have their opinion. Because when you start giving out your opinion as a coach, you're basically saying that the people you're leading, their opinions really not, you're not gonna listen to theirs. And I yeah. think this is a slippery slope for coaches. If any young coach listening to this is, there's a separation between, I'm not saying you should be a different person, but I think you have to keep the professional relationship with the players respectful. And if they believe and their voices need to be heard, you need to listen to them no matter what, no matter what your personal beliefs are. Jack Del Rio, first-year defensive coordinator with the Washington football team. Ron Rivera brings him in. As you said, with his Twitter account, he's going to say stuff that may be opposed with other players and says, I think it starts with being accountable. Tony Dungy taught me that. He was terrific in saying, I can do better. But that raises a greater point, Mike. Danny Cannell told me years ago, he said, Mike Shanahan said, all you guys, I don't care what your politics are. I don't want any politics conversation. I don't want any religious conversation. And I don't want to talk about money. Other than that, let's stay on the same page. And Canal joked to me, <laughs> whenever CNA wasn't around, of course, what do the guys talk about? Politics, money, <laughs> societal issues, et cetera. But there's something to be said for, like you said, you're going to lose the room, right? If a coach comes in there and was to say, well, I don't think Black Lives Matter is all that, and I have criticism with the movement, and I don't agree with this, like you, you'd lose the room in a hurry, right? If you say something political that would be as opposed to what the majority of players say, you're going to lose them. So I agree with you. There, there's all this thought of, well, it's what I believe. I'm allowed to believe what I want. Yeah, okay, that's fine. But guess what? It's a team, and everyone's going to stay on the same page. And if you open up your big mouth and big trap and piss off some guys, that's not going to go well. Look what happened to Drew Brees, right? There's an example of a guy with tons of equity, great player. He makes a comment that doesn't sit well with people, and boom, he gets hit. Rightly or wrongly, you got to be careful with your thoughts, especially, like you said, when you're a coach. No, no doubt. And, and you have to be able to listen. I mean, I think the one thing that we that the mistakes have been made since the 60s since for a long time no one's listening no one's listening and no one really understands and until you engage until you really devote yourself to listening as a coach you, you know 
you're never going to really be able to connect with your players. And I think this, uh, you know, like last night I watched the 76er game. Greg Popovich stood for the for the national anthem. Yeah. He didn't kneel. He stood. He wore his vote T-shirt. He got off. He gave his opinion. I mean, but I think he's connected enough to the players that he respects them and they respect him. You as a coach have to be able to do that. When you just walk into a new situation like Del Rio's walking into, this is a really slippery slope. And plus the fact that they, he hasn't been around any of these players. So their first reaction to him is going to be his political views, not his coaching style. I think that's dangerous. Great point about Pop. He has uh, spoken up many times about the importance of racial issues. He has criticized Donald Trump many times. But when it came to the anthem, he chose to stand. When asked about it afterwards, so that's my personal business. I'm not going to get into it. And DeMar DeRozan backed him up, one of the Spurs stars. And Pop can do whatever he wants. He Trust me, we know what he stands for. If he wants to stand for the anthem, fine. I mean, that, that there's no issue with that because of what Pop stands for. So you're right. It's all about communication and people feeling what, what's right in their heart. When we come back. Quarterback competitions are heating up around the league. Plus, Alex Smith is officially back. All that much more after this break. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. As always, you can read Michael Lombardi's work in The Athletic. His latest column is about breaking down this summer's quarterback competitions. We'll get to the Bears in a second because that's the one I'm most entertained by always. Let's do Patriots. As you wrote, when the Patriots added Cam Newton, they created a competition. All offseason, the job was thought to be Jared Stidham's, but with Newton showing up, the Stidham experiment will have to wait a year. They would never have brought Newton in to be the backup. No chance, right? Cam's the absolute starter, even if he had a bad camp, which I don't think he'll have, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, Al Davis taught me this when I worked for him. He he would always say, fuck, kid. I I, I don't want to get a little bit better. I want to get a lot better. And his point was, you know, when you're a personnel guy, you're always thinking about who's a better player. And, and I was like, I don't want to waste an asset to get incrementally better. I want to waste assets to get a lot better. Like if a guy say you graded a guy a 58 and you, you use a second round pick on a player, let's take the Eagles, for example, you know, they have a backup quarterback and they use a second round asset on Jalen Hurt to improve that. Have they improved it? We don't know. 
but that's a huge asset to use for a player that you're not quite sure he's going to come through. Same thing with the Packers, Jordan Love. They take him. Not you know, we know Aaron. We've had this conversation, but it, it goes through. And I think when when the Patriots put an asset into a player. Now, you could say, well, Lombardi, they didn't really put any asset into Cam Newton. Well, the only reason they didn't put any asset into him is they had none at that time. They have plenty of money. Now, because they have so much money, the Cam Newton contract will hamstring them a little bit because Belichick is never going to bring a player in that he has to pay more money or he's going to redo Cam's deal or he's going to do something with Cam to make it so that he ha- he has a conversation with Cam or something so that Cam knows that when he told him he had no money – he wasn't lying to him. So, you know, I think that when they brought him in, it wasn't because they thought, oh, my God, we're going to give him a look. Look, let's face it. This is a big man. You know, I'm sure they're watching single wing tape. I think the creative juices are flowing in Foxborough. And I think that they love Jarrett Stidham. But what I said in the column was this is a unique opportunity that they haven't had in New England to really change and revitalize who they are as an offense. And there's no doubt about the fact that Newton is eager and he's hungry, right? He's going to be like, uh, he's like Tony Pro in The Irishman, like coming in, just going after the big lines. Oh, Jimmy Hoffa, you think you're a tough guy? Watch this. Like People have kicked me to the curb. People think I'm overrated. Watch this. He's, he's literally ready to, to just chaw and chomp at the bit. The Dolphins are an interesting situation. As you wrote, head coach Brian Flores, evoking his inner Belichick, announced all players would be competing to start during training camp. Even Ryan Fitzpatrick, last year's starter, acknowledged he's holding the job until Tua Tungavailoa is ready to take over. Do you think the Dolphins start with Tua, or is it Fitz's job at least at first until Tua's ready to go? This team isn't expected to win right away. I just don't see how, you know, Tua last played in November of eight of 19. How does he go into a game without contact, without really going through a preseason and being able to absorb a hit, handle a hit, you know, do all that stuff? I just don't know how that's going to work. I think that they would be smart to wait a week. I think that they would be smart to wait two or three weeks, let him get kind of indoctrinated into the system because he shows up in New England. And he's got Chan Gailey's playbook. Belichick has not been very kind to rookie quarterbacks. He shows up there. The next thing you know, he's going to get every blitz known to mankind. The game's going to move way too fast. And it's probably not the right thing for him. I think there is a development plan that has to get it put into place. And part of that development plan has to be the right situation against the right team where we can start to build on success. There's going to be bumpy roads. We know that. But we got to have a plan for that. Plan is, eventually Tua becomes the guy. How about the Chargers? Anthony Lynn loves Tyrod Taylor, as you wrote, and he knows Taylor can help the Chargers compete for a playoff spot if he cuts down on his turnovers and plays well. If Lynn turns to Herbert, he will create a problem. The Chargers are ready to win now, but Herbert won't be ready to win consistently until next season, so Lynn does not have a choice. He's in a unique position. The Dolphins are not in win-now mode, so they can grow and be patient with Tungvaloa. That's not the case with the Chargers. That's fascinating. You're big on their defense. You think the Chargers can make some noise. The quarterback position is going to be key because you know the fans are going to say, give us Herbert, give us Herbert. People love the sexy new car. They want to see the big man who looks like a prototypical quarterback. But you think at least to begin, Taylor's the answer. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's certain the teams have to be in symmetry, right? So usually when Dallas drafts Troy Aikman, they're not a very good team. He's 1-15, no big deal. He's learning how to play. Same thing with Peyton Manning, 1-15. But when, you know, Roethlisberger had to play as a rookie only because Tommy Maddox got hurt, there's a level of symmetry that has to be created. And what happens is you got to stand in front of your team as the head coach and say, this guy gives us the best chance to win. And if he's a young player, 
and you're going through a lot of growing pains, that's a challenge. And I think that that's where Anthony Lynn is. He has no choice but to start Tyrod Taylor. Is that the right decision? I think he thinks so because he thinks Tyrod Taylor will protect the football. He thinks he's good enough with his running game. He thinks he's good enough with defense that he can compete. If he can cut down on the river's mistakes and and keep his defense fresh and get him better on third down, then I think he does. I think that's the whole situation. And I think that's why it's easy to say that Tyrod will be the starter. Uh, and now we get to the one that's always the most fun, which is the Chicago Bears. And at least on paper, you say, well, Trubisky's got to be the guy. And as you wrote, they cannot not be Trubisky because they will lose him mentally if it's Nick Foles. And besides, Nick Foles is better in a relief role anyways. And you think the way that the camp will be structured, that Trubisky will flourish at least in camp, right? Oh, he'll look like a billion dollars. I mean, they'll have everything scripted. He'll know where to go with the football. It'll go off just like because they'll control it. And he'll look good. Now, he probably will have some inaccurate throws like he typically always does. But he'll look really good. And then that'll allow Matt Nagy to stand in front of his team and say he gives us the best chance, knowing that if he has to bench him. Once he benches Trubisky, then Trubisky's career is over in Chicago. But they can't start out with Trubisky's career over in Chicago because Trubisky's mindset isn't going to be to lead the troops back. We're going to be great. Don't worry. We're coming back. No, 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 no. That's not who MVP Mitch is. MVP Mitch is you got to massage him. You got to make sure ESPN's not on in the in in, in Hallis Hall. Everything's going to be okay. You know you're doing really good. You got to you got to really take him under your wing. I don't see how he loses that job in the preseason and be, especially without games especially without games. So for me, you know, I think that's another easy one. He's the starter. He moves on and everybody, you know, and then once they make that decision, once they make that move that he can't play or can play, then, you know, then they're go then they're on to another quarterback. They're not ready to do that right now no matter what they say about the level of comp coming out of there. As you wrote, it's draft status and makeup and the makeup of Trubisky is quite frankly, he's sensitive and and he's soft. Speaking of the opposite, which is tough, Ben Roethlisberger says he feels really good. 2019 surgery repaired three torn elbow tendons. He suffered that season-ending injury in week two. He says he dealt with the elbow pain for years, but that feeling when he threw to Juju Smith-Schuster was like nothing else in terms of the pain. Now he says his arm feels really, really good. I'm lighter than I've been in 13, 14 years. He's 38 years old, Mike. Years ago, you'd say 38. He's got a year or two left. One thing about Roethlisberger, though, if he's conditioning himself better we know he's tough. We know Pittsburgh has good weapons around him. I know you're bullish on the Steelers this year. Yeah, I really am. I mean, last year they were so good without any play from the quarterback. And if Big Ben – now, he wasn't good at the beginning of this year. He was horrible in New England when he started out. Wasn't very good the first half against Seattle before he got hurt. He's got to play much better. But for me, you know, he, if he's in shape and looking at the pitchers, he looks like it. He's the key. You know, James Conner, for all intents of anybody who could have opted out and got the 350, James Conner could. Contract here for James Conner. He's going to come back and play. They've got to get a running game. I think people, there's always this preconceived notion about teams. Like Pittsburgh hasn't been able to run the football in three years. Even when they had Le'Veon Bell, they were struggling. They were 15th in the league in Russia. They've got to find some balance. I mean, they fired Bruce Arians because he wouldn't run the ball. And they got to find some balance to take some of the pressure off of Big Ben. I like Pittsburgh. I think it's great that he's in shape. I was a little bit worried about him earlier in the year, but he says he's ready to go. Um, it's interesting. Like I said, 38, it's like the new 35 now. If Ben Roethlisberger is ready to go, those weapons, I wouldn't count against him. And I think this guy is the feel-good story. If there's one quarterback you want to root for, it's Alex Smith. 
Ron Rivera, his head coach, said he's been, quote, pleasantly surprised by quarterback Alex Smith's progress. He also made it clear he's been pleased with second-year quarterback Dwayne Haskins' progress. To remind everyone, Alex Smith is 36. He's trying to recover from a broken fibula and tibia suffered in November of 2018. It's almost two years. 17 surgeries nearly led to his right leg being amputated. Washington has not yet cleared him for football activity. He's currently on the physically unable to perform list before camp, but he's been working on the side with trainers, performing the same drills as others. Mike, this would be remarkable if he gets playing time this season. Really remarkable. And the fact that he's at $16 million. I mean, they haven't, as of today, Tuesday afternoon, when we're taping this pod, they haven't done anything with his contract. He's, got, he's fully vested in there for $16 million. That's a lot to pay for a quarterback. You know, he's got a $16 million base salary. He's prorated signing bonus of 4.3. So he's counting on their cap at 20.3. Now, his salary's guaranteed, so they can't do anything with him. So they got to carry him. Now, but that doesn't mean they couldn't trade him. And I think if you're in the league and you're hearing how good he's doing and you know he's got a guaranteed $16 million, you're, you're a little skeptical. Because remember, as I said earlier in the pod, no team can bring players in for physicals or workouts right now. That's all been shut down. So all you can go by is what people say. I, you know, I mean, I know they got to carry him. I know he's on their books for 16. That's a lot of coin for a backup quarterback. And I would worry about him getting healthy. I would worry about him being able to play because the, the injury was gruesome, but love the fact that he was able to come back. Now, to be the Alex Smith, remember, Alex Smith was really athletic and he could move around. We'll see how athletic he is coming off the leg. I know you're not big on Haskins either. So if you're Ron Rivera, would you have an open competition right now? Say it's either Haskins or Smith, or are you leaning Haskins and try to get Smith up to speed and then flip him somewhere else? You know, I, I, I wrote this in the athletic piece. The two places that just have given the jobs, the three places really, Jacksonville has given it to Minshew, who Minshew is not, you know, he, everybody said he was on the, on the list for COVID. He's not. He's off the list. Matthew Stafford's off the list. False positive tests. That's the other thing we're seeing. A lot of false positive tests too, right? People are asymptomatic and they, you know, they go on. There's a positive and not. We saw this a lot in basketball too. So I, so I wrote, you know, Minshew, Haskins, and Drew Locke were the three jobs that really weren't open, but should have been open. So yeah, the answer to your question is, yeah, I would. But I just think knowing how Dan Snyder runs his Washington football team, he wants Haskins to be the guy, you know, and you could see Rivera's kind of giving him love saying, hey, he's caught up on the, you know, he and Kyle Allen are pretty much the same in terms of knowing what to do. We'll see, you know, again, again, and this is what's part of the column too. This is going to be the hardest position to evaluate without preseason games. It's going to be impossible because every quarterback in camp will look pretty good. They'll look pretty good because, it, you know, you'll script it so he looks good. It's when the games start. Like, I wouldn't be surprised after three weeks of September, we'll see quarterbacking changes. We'll see. What up next? Can you smell what The Rock is cooking? The XFL times three plus thoughts and prayers for Howard Mudd and the great quotes of Johnny Sack. That's next on the GM Shuffle. Well, the XFL trying to go again. A group including actor and former WWE star Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, has agreed to purchase the XFL for approximately $15 million. The XFL declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy April 13th. And so 
Who knows? Maybe The Rock can make it work. In case you want the numbers, the league averaged 1.9 million TV viewers per game in 2020 and generated nearly 20 million in gross revenues in 2020. I know you watched more than I did, Mike, and you thought it was was good out of the gate at least. What do you think? XFL, can it work again? I think it can. I mean, look, I think there's going to be a bigger player pool than ever before, you know, and and we should have some kind of – According to Dr. I call him Fanucci, you know, from The Godfather. According to Fauci, I call Dr. Fanucci, you know, Don Fanucci. According to Don Fanucci, we should have some therapeutic or some cure by then so we can have people in the stands and we can do all that. You know, I think it's a hell of a deal for him. Now, Redbird Capital Partners. They, they have an option for seven and a half million of the 15. So I think this is all going through and just reading a lot of stuff online today. I mean, this is a hell of a deal to pay $15 million to basically get all the, all the hardware. Think about the equipment that they're going to get for $15 million. the video machines, the, the uniforms, the, the, all this stuff that you could basically would it cost you to, it's worth $61 million. You get it for 15. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Johnson as investors include his business partner, Danny Garcia. Garcia will have an executive position in the league and said that both she and Johnson will have a hands-on approach to running the league. Dwayne Johnson, this is a guy who played at the U. He played in the CFL and he certainly knows uh, how to market himself. So curious to see if that can work for the XFL. Before we get to Johnny Sack, prayers for Howard Mudd, longtime NFL assistant, one of the best offensive line coaches in football history. He has been hospitalized after a motorcycle crash in intensive care at a Seattle hospital. He's got a fractured pelvis and spine, 78 years old. A family friend said he's on and off. Like this guy, legendary career. I mean, not just the seven years and three Pro Bowls, but an offensive line coach, the Chargers, the Niners, the Seahawks, the Browns, the Chiefs, the Colts, the Eagles. You want great line play. You look no further than Howard Mudd. No doubt. I mean, great coach, you know, was really demanding. And he was one of those guys that could take chicken shit and make it into chicken salad. He was really good at finding these obscure down-the-line guys that fit what he wanted to do. You know, most scouts rejected most of the players he fell in love with, but he ended up making them good players. And he was diligent in his craft. I know I was with him in Cleveland. He was remarkable there. We tried to bring him back to Cleveland again when I was there. So, you know, we wish him well. I know he loved riding the motorcycle. He used to ride the motorcycle in Cleveland, going out there in the snow and all that. So hopefully he's going to get better. It sounds like he's got a lot of a lot of things, hurdles he has to jump through medically. But we send our prayers to his family and hope he has a speedy recovery. No doubt about that. Hopefully Howard Mudd does indeed make a full recovery. To continue the theme here, which has been Sopranos characters and some of their best quotes, Johnny Sack. John Sacramoli, Sacramoni, excuse me, who was not an actor. He was a guy who saw the casting call for an Italian-American in a TV show. He went to the casting call. He was actually late, figured out, oh, what the hell, I might as well just have a smoke before I go in there. Stops for a cigarette before he goes in, which is apropos considering his character. Goes in, the casting agent says, okay, we're all done. He says, okay, well, whatever. I wasn't going to get the job anyways. She goes, well, actually, you kind of got an interesting look. Do you want to just give me a little bit? He gives enough that he gets a second casting call, ended up getting the job, ended up being an amazing actor. Vince Corotola is his name. I go, uh, I live in Hohokus here, Ridgewood, which is near my house. There's a body shop I went to. There's a picture of Vince Corotola on the wall. Like, dear John, this is a great garage. When I walked in, this is shortly after I moved a year ago. I go, oh my God, Johnny Sack. She goes, yeah, yeah, he lives in Ridgewood. He comes here all the time. I go, what kind of cars do you drive? He goes, ah, Cadillac, Benz. I go, yeah, that makes sense. But talk about a guy, Mike, I don't think David Chase expected much from him and he came up being a very memorable character. 
It really did. And, and, and really, I mean, he's in season one, too. I mean, he's sitting down there at the table. You know, uh, remember the line he says when he's sitting down there at the table holding the, 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 uh, the decision between Heshi when, when Uncle Junior taxed Heshi, you know, right. the old rules don't apply no more. Oh, oh, Junior, if any flies are on you, they're paying rent. You know, I mean, he's just, you know, it's just, uh, I, I, I thought he was, I, I knew he was a plumber by trade, I think. And then he loved act acting, you know, and, and, and he, I loved every time he would meet somebody like when he meets Pauly in the museum of noses, there goes the freaking Mona Lisa. He always had a line <laughs> when he met, when he met somebody. Well, I think one of his best episodes is the weight, which is an episode in which he yeah. finds out somebody who we know it's Ralphie made an insulting comment about his wife, which is she had an 800 pound mole removed from her ass. He sees no humor in that, and he wants vengeance. He wants to find out who did it, and he's going to kill him. And that whole episode, you're like, wow, this is a guy who you know reveres his wife. And even though she's obese, he's like, no. At one point, he's describing to Tony, you know, I never found her overweight. I thought she was, you know, voluptuous, you know, beautiful. And at one point, they're trying to figure out, you know, financial restitution to deal with the fact that we know somebody in Tony's crew insulted her. And Johnny at one point says, 200 grand for insulting my wife? What's next, Carmine? He gets to fuck her for a million? And Carmine says, he wants to fuck her? (laughs) (laughs) Carmine, he was never really with it. I mean, he was always, how about when they try to teach Carmine technology around the phones and they had all those phones and Uncle Junior's on there eating olives and he can't quite figure it out. That that thing that Uncle Junior's sitting there at the table when he's got to call back to the flower shop to make sure that he's got something that little remember those you know and you kept your addresses in there where you hit a you moved it down then you hit the button and it went up to the a's it's so i mean that that detail like i think that was in every italian american home that address book that thing that he had there is so perfect but johnny sack was like i said i loved it and i loved how he always played both sides like remember when ralphie He's trying to bridge together Ralphie and, and Tony, you know, and he goes to Tony and he says, you know, Tony says, well, what does he want? He says, well, I think Capo, you know, is what he would take. Tony says, no fucking way I'm making Capo. But then when he talks to Ralph, he says, you know, Tony mentioned Capo. I threw cold water on it. You know, I mean, I mean no. And then he says to Tony, you know, Ralph mentioned Capo. I threw cold water. on it. Like he lies in through the whole thing. It's so good. How about the scene when they're out there in the back at his backyard of his house and he's got to trudge through the snow and the poor, how about the poor, how about the poor long guy? He's on the ground too. They're the FBI's arresting him too. Yeah. Well, that's Sal. They got that great uh, Van Morrison song. I think it's Glad Tidings. They played a few times that episode. Yeah. Tony, Tony looks like a bear, right? But at the end of the episode, Car- Carmel's like, what the hell happened to you? He's like running through the snow to evade justice. But I mean, that whole sequence, the fact he wants blood for Tony Blondetto, because he's like, listen, Phil's not going to take this. Phil's brother's dead. We need to kill Tony. And the way that Tony Soprano figures a way out of it, very, very smart. So good. I mean, it's so good. And, you know, I like when he's sitting out there when Ralph comes over to him and he's complaining. When Remember, he's sitting outside smoking, listening to a football game on Thanksgiving weekend. You know, and Ralph comes over and like, I've been earning here with two fucking hands, you know. But when Jenny walks away and and she's got to go to physical therapy, he goes, used to be some hoofer, the poor thing. All their joints are bad. I mean, like, it's just, I mean, I think he had some of the great lines of, of, of opening when he walked into a room, you know, like when he comes in, when Furio and is sitting at the table with Pauly and, and, and Puss is sitting there and he walks in. And, you know, they, they have the greedy. Of course, he insults Pauly with a little bit of, you know, that he shakes Florio's head. And, of course, Puss won't leave the table because he, he wants to hear what's going on, but they don't trust Puss. So good. So classic. I, it, I, would, 
I would think that that guy had acted before he did that. You know, he really sold me on it, and it was very authentic. I agree. You could definitely feel his talent come across, even though prior to The Sopranos, nobody else had seen it. Later on, he got a job, I think, a Law & Order, one of the Law & Order spinoffs. He was there as well. Last thought on Johnny Sack, how about his daughter's wedding, which is a very self-referential <laughs> episode, right? At one point, uh, Christopher even makes a joke about somebody should ask him for a request, a joke to the Godfather, right? He can never refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day. But the scene where he's getting taken away, he just starts bawling. The disgust and revulsion which which Frank Vincent looks at him. Like, look at this guy crying on his father's wedding. Day. Yeah. That is so what would he tell what would he tell him? How good was the band at that wedding, though? How good was that band? I mean, I, I mean, I, that wedding was the best. Like, I like how kind of I didn't get invited to that wedding. That wedding looked so good. You know, and then the, how about when him and Tony were sitting at the table? Ma, we're just talking over here, and whatever her name is, the aunt over there. What'd he yeah. say? What'd he say? You know? I mean, it was one of the best scenes of all time. I mean, really, you know, the mayor of Munchkin land. I got to get rid of the mayor of Munchkin land. Uh, I mean, so good. It's great. As always, Mike is on Instagram. You can follow him at Lombardi NFL. Same as his Twitter handle. You can follow me at Adnan Esperk. You can also follow our show's Instagram page at the GM Shuffle. And please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Uh, you can give us a, a review out of five stars and post a comment. I see all the comments. I know some of you maybe don't like the show, don't like some of the Sopranos talk, but tough luck. That's, that's what we're about. And thank you for all the kind comments that come our way as well. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next time.